This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, we are thrilled to have Dr. Eric Balkavage back. He was in episode 105 talking about thyroid physiology and chronic illness. And due to huge demand, we have brought him back to dip a little bit deeper into thyroid physiology, biophysiology, detoxification, and chronic illnesses. Dr. Eric is the owner and founder of Rejuven. R-E-J-U-V-A-G-E-N, a functional medicine clinic in Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania. He's also the co-host of Thyroid Answers podcast, where he focuses on answering the pressing questions of those suffering with chronic hypothyroidism symptoms. He also recently co-authored a book called The Thyroid Debacle. Today, Dr. Eric and I talked a lot about some of the signs and symptoms of subclinical hypothyroidism, fat malabsorption, the use of synthetic versus non-synthetic medications, and really diving into why people can have lab values that are suggestive of them being persistently hypothyroid despite escalating doses of medications. We talked a lot about peripheral conversion, intracellular conversion, and what this all really amounts to are reasons why our thyroid is not functioning optimally. So I hope you'll really enjoy this conversation. Again, a really deeper dive into cellular response to thyroid physiology, tissues, the immune system, what gets turned on and off, things we need to look for and how to maintain a healthier thyroid. But thank you again for carving time out of your busy schedule. If you don't already follow Dr. Eric on Instagram, you need to because he has incredibly informative isn't it like thyroid Thursdays, you have video and content yeah. and it's really fantastic. And I feel like even as a practitioner, I learn a lot. So I know that others will as well. How are you doing? Well, thank you. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show again. Absolutely. So I thought it might be helpful to talk a little bit about, you know, this is my nerdy science side. It's like, let's talk a little bit about anatomy and physiology. So for those who are listening, who've been diagnosed with hypothyroidism, with an underactive thyroid, an autoimmune hot thyroid, either Hashimoto's or Graves, let's talk a little bit about the physiology, because I think so many of us, including practitioners, forget the communication, the very delicate orchestration and communication that goes on with the HPA access and thyroid and how all these other hormones really impact the health of our thyroid. And I think this is a great place to start because I really asked my community, you know, what their questions were. And it was pretty consistently in a couple different camps, but I think that's a great place to start. And I know this is an area in particular that you love discussing. So let's dive into, you know, anatomy and physiology. Well, pretty simple thyroid hormone is what kind of really controls and regulates the metabolism of our cell. And there's two primary thyroid hormones that impact the cell, T4 and T3. T3 is considered the more active form. T4 is more the circulating reserve, the more dominant hormone that's in circulation. And it's the one that needs to be converted to T3 to kind of support or stimulate our metabolism. So those thyroid hormones are generated by a gland that's butterfly-shaped gland, like right in the middle of your neck. And what happens is all the signals from the body, hunger signals, cold signals, fear signals, stress signals, 
all these signals from your organs, your tissues all come into the brain and get integrated. And there's a gland in your brain called your hypothalamus that has to kind of figure all those things out. And then it drives, if the body needs to increase its metabolism, mm -hmm. the hypothalamus increases its a hormone called TRH, thyrotrophin releasing hormone. And TRH then goes to a gland in your brain, a little gland in your brain just below the hypothalamus called your pituitary gland. And the pituitary gland gets a signal to make something called thyrotrophin stimulating hormone, TSH, which almost everybody has heard of already. And TSH can then go to your thyroid gland and tell the thyroid gland, hey, we need to increase the production of thyroid hormone. And then the thyroid gland makes thyroid hormone. There's T1, there's T2, there's T3, there's T4. It makes some other things as well. But T3 and T4 wind up being the primary hormones that are released from the thyroid gland and enter the bloodstream. Typically, the ratio is about 10 to 1. 10 you know, For every one T4, there's one T3. So T4 is by majority is the dominant hormone. And that's good because it's a pre-hormone or a pro-hormone that's not, it's still active. Some people say it's inactive, but it is actually an active hormone. It can actually do some stuff, but it's not nearly as active as T3. And that's what most of the cells, cell receptors inside the cell need is T3. And so T4, T3 dumped into the bloodstream. And when they're first dumped into the bloodstream, they're dumped into the bloodstream as free hormone. But to get to all the cells and tissues, they have to then be kind of pick up an Uber, right? And so they need to get an Uber ride to the body. And that Uber ride is typically something called thyroid binding globulin. It's a protein, like an Uber that just drives it around the tissue. There's other binding proteins, but by far thyroid binding globulin is the one we talk about most dominantly about when we talk about thyroid physiology. Once that T4 and T3 is in the bloodstream, it's like circulating through the bloodstream, going into the tissues. And when a tissue needs thyroid hormone, that T4 or the T3 that's made can become separated or free of the thyroid binding globulin and then be actively transported into the cell and be converted into T3. And then that can go to the nuclear receptors and the mitochondrial receptors or some of the cytoplasmic receptors and stimulate actions. T4 and T3 can also bind to the outside of the cells and stimulate what we call non-genomic actions. But most of the ones that people think about like, hey, I want my hair to grow. I want to lose weight. I want good, healthy skin. I want to have a libido. I want my bowels to move. Those are typically, we're thinking about those types of actions are typically driven by the intracellular mitochondrial and genomic actions of T3 in the cell. I think it's really important for people to understand that there are all these subtle nuances to thyroid. I don't think I fully appreciated thyroid physiology and these hormones in particular until I was probably in my late thirties. And I was seeing a lot of women in particular in their mid to late forties and early fifties who, you know, were being diagnosed with things like adrenal fatigue. They were told, oh, well, your thyroid sub clinically hypothyroid, but not enough to put you or not enough to justify putting you on medication. And I just felt like that we were missing opportunities with a lot of individuals who probably really warranted a closer look at managing their thyroid more effectively. Now, what are some of the things for the benefits of the listeners? Cause this is one of the questions that I did receive. What are some of the things that can impact that conversion from inactive to active thyroid hormone? Because you know, I know like gut health can impact this, you know, whether or not your liver is detoxing effectively. There are a lot of 
again, nuances that can impact the conversion of being able to utilize the thyroid hormones properly and effectively. And when people are thinking about the mitochondria, so obviously those are powerhouses of our cells, really critically important. And we know north of 40, most of us have some degree of mitochondrial dysfunction. Obviously the healthier you are, the healthier your mitochondria are, but I think there's this misnomer that our mitochondria just stay healthy all on their own, but it's a lot of the lifestyle piece, a lot of the, you know, how we choose to sleep, what we choose to eat, how we choose to move our bodies. Are we insulin resistant? So let's unpack that because that was a question that actually came up two or three times on Instagram when I was polling, you know, followers for what they were interested in learning more about. Yeah. So I think the way to kind of get into that is to first kind of discuss that thyroid hormone production by the gland is one piece. That's like the tip of the iceberg, right? The bigger piece of that is what we don't see and we don't measure. And that is what's inside the cell. And that's like the part of the iceberg that's underneath the water, right? And so putting thyroid hormone into the bloodstream, whether it's from your thyroid gland or, Hey, if you don't have a thyroid gland, you had, if you had Graves disease and it was radiated or medicated away, or it's so dysfunctional that you have that you got diagnosed with primary hypothyroidism. Getting blood thyroid hormone in the bloodstream is part A. Part B is what happens to that thyroid hormone once it hits the cells and tissues. And what's important to understand is that every tissue type has different transport mechanisms, different ways to get thyroid hormone into their cells, have different quantities and qualities of the what do we call the converting enzymes, what we call the deionase enzymes, and all the tissue types have different types of receptors. And so all the tissues don't kind of regulate thyroid hormone quite the same, okay? And so that's important and critically important because if they did, that means every time you dumped out more thyroid hormone to the system, then every tissue would have to have its metabolism revved up at the same time. And if there's a downturn in thyroid hormone physiology, then everything would have to be down-regulated at the same time. We wouldn't want that because if you want to have sex, right, you need some thyroid hormone to generate sex hormones and going to get <laughs> things in gear, but you don't want to be having a bowel movement in the middle of that sex, right? So you don't want your bowels moving at the same time you're having an orgasm. So in those situations, we need different systems to be upregulated when other systems are downregulated, right? It's kind of maybe not the prettiest picture to think of, but I think that kind of hits home. You don't want those two things happening at the same time, right? And so the body's pretty smart, right? Hey, I'm going to put this thyroid hormone out there. When you need it, liver, when you need it, you use it, right? Mm -hmm. When you gut, when you need it, you use it. Brain, when you need it, you use it. But it's not like you all have to use it at the same time. So now we've got this issue like, okay, so now it's available and I have a, I'm a cell. Do I just bring it in and convert all that T4 to T3? And the answer is no, the cells of certain tissues, depending on what's happening on the cell is either going to bring more T4 into the cell, convert it to T3 to increase metabolism, or it's going to take that T4 and, or the T3 that's in the circulation and deactivate it if it doesn't need it. Okay. And if it's deactivating T4, it's converting it to something called reverse T3. And if it's deactivating T3, it's converting it to something called T2, which no clinical labs measure. So we don't know when necessarily when that's happening. And that creates problems, which maybe we'll get into later. But so what happens is when a cell wants to increase its metabolism, for the most part, it wants more T3 in the cell. Because when T3 binds to the nuclear and mitochondrial receptors, it helps generate energy. It helps make proteins. It helps make enzymes. It makes healthy cell membranes. 
It does all these kind of building block types of things, okay? But T3 binding to other receptors can actually turn off actions. And some of the actions that are turned off by T3 binding are actions associated with inflammation and cell defense. And so we, the cell is kind of in one of two states. I'm either in building mode, right? Growing mode, or I'm in cell defense mode, okay? And so T3 is like the dimmer switch to determine what's that gonna be. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm a cell, let's say I'm a cell in the liver and I'm sensing some type of stress or danger, now I wanna slow my metabolism down and I want to defend myself, right? Mm -hmm. Just like people. And I use the analogy with my patients that, you know, if you were cooking for your family, you had four burners on, you know, you got making this big meal and one of your kids is sitting at the island and they're having a great conversation, but then somebody breaks in and starts attacking your child. Are you going to continue to cook? Right. And most people would say, no, I'm not going to continue to cook. I'm going to defend my child. Okay. <laughs> Are you going to take the time to turn the burners off? Probably not. Right. Mm -hmm. You're going to pack everything up in glass Tupperware. Probably not. Are you going to try and throw a load of washing real quick? Probably not. Are you going to go take a nap? Probably not. You're going to go have sex? Probably not. Right. So if I walked in not seeing you defending your child, I would walk in and I would say, man, maybe you're just a terrible mom and housewife. Cause I see wash not done. I see a kitchen not clean. I see food burning on the stove. You know, maybe I just need to hire a cook. Maybe I need to hire a house cleaner and maybe you want those things. But the reality is I'm only seeing a part of the picture. So instead of saying, wow, this is a terrible situation, I should really be looking at like what else is going on here. And oh, if I hire you a cook, but you're not going to eat, even if I give you a cook because you're defending your child. Now I look at it and say, hey, Cynthia's not doing the wrong thing. She's not a bad parent, bad mother, bad spouse. She is a great parent because she's defending her child. Our cells are just like us. They want to grow, build muscles, tissues, proteins, all these great things unless they sense danger, then they need to slow that stuff down and shift energy to cell defense. And that's from my perspective, what's happening for a lot of people. And that's what I call, and I didn't make the term up, cellular or tissue hypothyroidism. This has been talked about in the literature for probably 20 to 30 years now, but nobody's paying attention to it. We do have a term for it in medicine, allopathic medicine is called euthyroid sickness syndrome or non-thyroidal illness syndrome. But in that model, it's pretty much considered that it's only a disorder of people in critical illness, in a hospital set setting who are in critical illness. That's the only time it happens. And that's not true. I mean, I think I just talked about that today on my Thyroid Thursday, is that this mechanism occurs when there's cell stressors that initiate danger. And so getting back to your cut, like what triggers it, there's lots of things that can trigger the cell stress or what we call the cell danger response hypoxia. That's lack of oxygen getting to the tissues. Well, people are like, well, I don't think I have that. Okay. Do you snore at night? Do you breathe through your mouth a lot? Do you have sleep apnea? Yes, yes, yes. Well, then you're triggered. You have hypoxia. You're not getting enough oxygen to the tissues that can be, that can trigger a cell stress response or cell danger response. And in that situation, your body, those cells that are receiving hypoxia or low oxygen state are going to downregulate thyroid metabolism. Why would the body do that? Well, if I don't have enough oxygen, one of the primary roles of T3 in the cell is to drive the mitochondrial production of ATP. I don't want to keep driving that process because it produces a lot of oxidative stress or damage. And so the body's pretty smart, like, whoa, 
if I don't have a lot of oxygen and now I give a lot of oxygen, that reperfusion process or that increased oxygenation process could really drive a lot of oxidative stress. So the body does that on purpose. Toxins affect the cell, can trigger a cell stress and a downregulation of thyroid hormone. Uh, bacteria, organisms, viruses, these can also trigger that cell stress or dangerous subbonds. Perceived stress, just emotional stress, physical injury, radiation. I mean, we, everybody's talking on these things and we don't think that they have it create any damage. You know, you see mixed reports, but the science is pretty clear that if you're sitting there with your phone talking like this all the time, the people that they've done in studies have decreased thyroid function because it creates damage. So we live in a you know, Wi-Fi dominated society. So is there a potential problem there? Yeah. So there's nutrient restrictions, you know, there's lots of different things that can have a real impact on it. Even dietary, the types of dietary fats you have, put them into the system. If they are becoming part of the cell membrane, these damaged oxidized fats, those two can result in some of the process that creates a dangerous spot. So anything that triggers the cell to say, wow, this is too much stress. I got to slow the metabolism down. And that includes disrupted sleep patterns. And it includes which is what happened to me, excessive exercise without recovery. Mm -hmm. I mean, you bring up so many good points. And the irony is that back in many years ago, when I was an ER nurse in Baltimore, I was asked to be part of an ER consortium. And what I went around and did throughout the Baltimore area, along with other advanced practice nurses and physicians, was I lectured on thyroid emergencies. And so you mentioned this kind of sick thyroid syndrome which, you know, the extremes are myxedema coma when your thyroid's grossly, and it's a life-threatening issue and thyroid storms. So you have these two extremes. And I think in traditional allopathic medicine, that's what we think of. Like you're really, really sick when those things happen and everything in between is kind of benign. But I love that you're acknowledging that the cellular response to all of these toxins or these stressors can really overtax the thyroid gland and make it much less efficient in doing its job and, you know, the cellular response to this stress. And I think we think of, I think many of us and including healthcare professionals, let's be honest, we think in terms of organs and glands, and we don't think about things on the cellular level. And that's really where it all starts. I do want to acknowledge that you mentioned poor quality fats, and this is, you know, another kind of rabbit hole we could dive down, but I would imagine, you know, the oxidation you know, the highly inflammatory seed oils, which I know Dr. Kate Shanahan, we've had her on the podcast talks a lot about, and I definitely try to avoid as much as possible. In fact, we were traveling, we were in Montana for a couple of days. I had a business trip. And so my whole family went, and every time we went out to dinner, my husband was like, please don't say it. Cause he said, I know what you're thinking. You're going to say it. You don't want to get salad dressing. Cause you're fairly certain you're going to get seed oils. And I said, yes, I am. but we know that even seed oil, so canola oil, soybean, cotton flat, cotton seed, sunflower, safflower, those kinds of things actually, you know, change the composition of that cellular membrane. So I would imagine that those are, you know, highly toxic as well. I would imagine, you know, trans fats, although we're not seeing as many as we did before, they can definitely play a role as well. Do, is there any current research that you have your hands on talking about seed oils and the association between thyroid physiology and the thyroid glands themselves? Well, the gland itself, I don't know. And I guess at the cell level, absolutely. So I would imagine it's going to impact the thyroid gland itself too. But when you have those damaged fats that are being incorporated into the cell membrane, the cell membrane is not as permeable mm -hmm. as 
maybe it should be, or it can become excessively permeable. So there's that fine balance between how much permeability, how easy it is to get things in and out of the cell. So if it's making the cell less permeable, then now that drives the hypoxic state. If it makes it more permeable, then we've got the potential for things to excessive amounts of things to come into a cell that probably shouldn't. And that too can trigger that danger response. But I do want to say that when people are listening to this and we're talking about thyroid physiology, it's important for them to understand that you can have hypothyroid signs and symptoms, hyperthyroid signs and symptoms, and have nothing wrong with your thyroid gland. That's what we're kind of saying with that non-thyroidal illness syndrome or euthyroid sickness syndrome. From a medical perspective, they're saying, hey, the gland is still functional. You just don't have enough thyroid hormone impacting the tissues or you have low T3 syndrome is another name that's thrown out there. But this happens quite a bit. And it's my argument is that for many people that this tissue level of hypothyroidism and sometimes hyperthyroidism, this starts long before the thyroid gland is ever has any damage to it. And so if you're one of those people that has been told you don't have a thyroid problem, even though your hair's falling out and you're overweight and you're fatigued and you have no libido and you're constipated, I know those are hypothyroid symptoms, but your medical doctor may tell you, you don't have a thyroid problem because your TSH and T4 are normal. I think we, I have to be fair to allopathic medicine because what they're saying is different than what the patient's often feeling. What the patient may be feeling in that moment is the signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism caused by cellular hypothyroidism or tissue hypothyroidism, but their gland may still be functioning to that point. You might say, well, it sounds like what you're calling cellular hypothyroidism is non-thyroidal illness syndrome or low T3 syndrome or uh, euthyroid sickness syndrome. Why aren't they telling me that? Well, because the guidelines don't tell a medical doctor to run a T3 or a reverse T3 on a regular basis. The guidelines pretty much tell a medical physician run a TSH or run a TSH with a reflex to free T4. Those are the only two tests that get run. So if your TSH is still normal, if your free T3 may never be run to see that the thyroid gland is already struggling. If your TSH is high, but your free T4 is still hanging on, then you're gonna be said you're subclinical. But that doesn't mean that your thyroid gland is in good shape. That means it's not producing enough thyroid hormone. And that's part of the reason why TSH is up. It may be that you have enough T4, but you can't convert it to T3. And that's why your TSH is still up. But the doctor's not going to tell you have euthyroid sickness syndrome because they haven't run any tests to be able to identify it. And the general consensus is that only happens in critical conditions. Yet the literature says that it happens in many other conditions like hypoxia, like acute and chronic inflammatory states. And what's one of the states that we see in this country that most people suffer from is chronic low-grade inflammation. And if that's the case, maybe we need to be looking at a bigger panel. But also to be fair to the medical doctor, they don't have a tool other than T4, pretty much, to provide as an answer. So I don't want to be putting extra T4 into a system that doesn't need it yet because I could drive somebody into a hyperthyroid state. So I understand the reserve There's lots of discussion. I'm sure, you know, looking at the literature, there's lots of discussion with, should we be providing T4 to people who are in a subclinical state? Maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't help. But the answer is, I don't think you should. This is a patient who's still at 
a cellular hypothyroid state. Yes, they're probably already into thyroiditis. There's already damaging occurring. But T4 in this situation isn't going to work, especially if that T4 is getting deactivated to reverse T3 already because of the cell danger response. More T4 in that system isn't going to fix it. Matter of fact, that's exactly what the body doesn't want. So a, a medical physician who's doing their job, who's following the guidelines, really does have their hands tied. They're often not going to run more than those two tests because the guidelines say it's not medically necessary to diagnose or treat. Insurance companies often don't want to pay for the extra tests because they're not medically necessary. And they don't want a patient coming back to them, you know, three weeks later after they get the blood panel with a $400 bill, like, why is this not being covered? And now you got to, and they know, because well, your insurance doesn't cover it. I told you that now they didn't cover it. Now you get this big bill and you're going to ask a medical physician, even if those, they do get those tests done, what do I do about? And they don't have a tool if it's mm -hmm. elevated reverse T3. They don't have a tool to try and fix that. There's no med to fix it. And the only other thing that typically occurs, some docs are a little bit more integrative and may say, okay, your T4 is good, but you're still symptomatic, but your T3 is lower. So we'll give you T3 since you don't seem to be able to do it. Again, that can normalize the blood, but it doesn't fix the underlying issue or the question, which is why is my cells that are supposed to do most of that conversion, not doing it in the first place, forcing that extra thyroid hormone into the bloodstream doesn't mean we're going to optimize cell function. And oftentimes it actually backfires by putting too much thyroid hormone into the system. Initially you have a honeymoon period, but then it triggers more of a hyperthyroid state, too much T4 or too much T3 impacting the brain causes mass cells to degranulate that can create brain fog and fatigue and anxiety. And then the other thing that happens is when you flood the brain with thyroid hormone, you actually increase the peripheral deactivation and actually make the hypothyroid state worse in the peripheral tissues. And one last piece, sorry to keep going, but the literature is clear that almost every form of cancer, let me say it this way, 2019 paper, I forget the name of the paper. I never thought that anybody would do this study. But what they found is that people who've been diagnosed with hypothyroidism and put on thyroid medication have a higher incidence of almost every type of cancer. That's a big deal. And it usually takes five, six years for the outcome of that to occur. And nobody's going back often and tying that to, oh, I put more thyroid hormone into the system. And now I've got a patient with any type of cancer, not just thyroid cancer, but almost any type of cancer. And the question might be, well, why does that happen? Because if T4 is not getting into the cells to don't stimulate normal metabolism, it can bind to what we call integrin receptors on the outsides of the cells and cause cell multiplication. Well, now if I have six cells and I multiply a bunch of six cells, now we've got the development of cancer. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armour Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armour's Colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, 
fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's fascinating. I'm trying to absorb all of this. I have so many different questions, but for someone that's listening and if they're, you know, looking to work with someone that's more integrative or functionally trained for their own information and really for my own validation, because I have a whole little algorithm that I work off with my own clients and patients, what are the ride and die thyroid labs you would start with? And 
do you routinely look at the cofactors for thyroid hormone to be looking to see like, what's the vitamin D level? What's their, you know, RBC zinc, what's their magnesium level? Is that part of like the clinical workup for you? And from your perspective, what are the diehard labs that everyone needs to be running so that they can get the proper information? And so they can really become, because what you're essentially saying is, is that a lot of medication management for thyroid is looking at a lab and prescribing a medication, hoping that it works. And for full disclosure, and I, this is another thing that I definitely want to touch on. So in September of last year, many people, including myself, I'd been on nature thyroid doing fine, stable thyroid hormone levels. And I had to dive down the rabbit hole after nature thyroid was recalled. I was on compounded. I was on armor. Now I'm on synthetics. And what's actually happened is I've gone from having a stable thyroid hormone levels to now my levels are really low. And in much to your point about, you know, there's obviously this disconnect in my body. So first let's unpack what are the thyroid labs? And do you think it's important to also be looking at cofactors for healthy thyroid production? And again, it's looking at, you know, things like iodine and iron levels and magnesium and zinc and all those things. Is that helpful as well? And then what has been your kind of mindset and philosophy? Because I'm sure there are a lot of people that are gravitating towards you and your practice because you are, you know, this recognized thyroid expert, because people are really feel like they've been floundering for the last probably nine months, you know, trying to make sense of what's working or not working for them. Are their symptoms better? Are they worse? You know, how are they showing up after, you know, the recall of a lot of the, you know, the natural desiccated products that were out there? Yeah. So lots of questions. Hopefully if I go off track, stop me and get me back on. But (laughs) when it comes to thyroid hormone, let's just say assess somebody, right? So in general, if somebody's taking T4, labs are normal, symptoms are normal. I think that's great, right? It works. And it does for a lot of people. If they are, it's just the issue that their thyroid gland doesn't work. You put T4 in, there's no problem with the downstream physiology. T4 converts to T3, gets to the cells, stimulates metabolism, and all is good. The problem sometimes is that when that doesn't work, we default to adding T3. Does adding T3 normalize T3? Absolutely it does. Is there a tendency for reverse T3 to go down? Which is one of the reasons sometimes people provide T3 because they say, hey, your T4 is converting to reverse T3. Reverse T3 is blocking the receptors. Therefore, we're going to give you T3. Your reverse T3 will go down and everything will be better. And initially, if you give somebody T3 and they don't have to go through a conversion process and they can get that into the cell fairly easily, yes, they're going to feel better. But in time, the body says, I didn't want more T4 or T3. So they they start deactivating it to T2. The issue with that whole process is, is that Reverse T3 does not block nuclear mitochondrial receptors. That's never been shown to be the case. We talk about it a lot. It's talked about a lot in functional medicine. There's assumptions that it might happen. Dianase 3 does go to the nucleus and it can deactivate T4 and T3 right in the nucleus. But there's been no science that I've seen. I think I've read 1,200 papers at this point and I've never seen anything documented that that's exactly what that happens. I'll hear thyroid people, experts talk, say that, because T3 and reverse T3 are mirror images that one can bind, you know, they can block each other out and bind to the same receptor. They are not mirror images. On one, iodine is pulled off the inner molecule. On the other, it's pulled off the outer molecule. So they are not mirror images. So I don't know why people keep repeating that. I don't know why we keep repeating the idea that reverse T3 blocks the receptors. And it is true. 
If you give somebody less T4 and give them more T3, their reverse T3 will go down because you don't have enough T4 to make reverse T3. So when I'm looking at somebody, I have to take into context what medication they're taking, first of all, and what supplements they're taking. But my start process for everybody is I want to see a full thyroid panel, TSH, T4 total, T3 total, free T4, free T3, T3 uptake, reverse T3, thyroid antibodies, there's a free thyroid index that's thrown in there. I don't really spend that much time looking at the free thyroid index, but those are the kind of the base thyroid panel, but you can't assess somebody's thyroid physiology with just those things. So I think a thyroid comprehensive thyroid panel has to be taken in context of the rest of what I call a comprehensive metabolic panel. And you've been in healthcare. I've been in healthcare on both sides as well. And then a comprehensive metabolic panel means totally different things to 10 different people. So, you know, my panel encompasses a lot of inflammatory markers, CRP, homocysteine, fibrinogen, uric acid, ferritin. And so what I want to see is, first of all, where's the person already? What's the state that they're in already? Well, we already know that they're primary hypothyroidism. We already know they have Hashimoto's. They're already on T4. So you have to assess the labs in that kind of scenario. And so I want to determine, is this a person who's got cellular hypothyroidism? They don't have very good conversion of T4 to T3. And you can really only assess that really well if the person's not on T3. If they're on T3, the T3 number is going to be artificially normal, right? It's going to be artificially elevated because that's not really what the gland is making. And it's not really what the peripheral tissues are making. And a good point to the patients is that your thyroid gland, your total T3 production is 30 micrograms. Your thyroid gland only typically makes five micrograms. The other 25 micrograms is made by your peripheral tissues. So peripheral tissue, liver, gut, Muscle brings T4 in, converts it to T3, and then it goes back out in the bloodstream so another tissue can use it, and then it keeps going until it gets metabolized. So the T3 in circulation is most of it is made by peripheral tissue conversion. So if you're seeing a normal T4 and a low T3, that's not necessarily a thyroid problem. That's a peripheral tissue conversion issue. And we have to ask that question, like why would the body not want to convert it T4 to T3? So I want to see that. Do I have a lower T3 situation? Do I have elevated reverse T3? And again, you have to take reverse T3 in context. If the person has a normal or functionally normal reverse T3, lab high is like 24. I usually use around 18 as my number. But if I have a patient with less than optimal T4, then that reverse T3 is going to be falsely low potential. I have to take that into consideration because if I don't have a lot of free T4 or I have low total T4, I'm not going to get as much of that T4 to be able to be free to actually convert to reverse T3. Does that part make sense? Totally. totally. So then the next thing I want to see is I look at the ratio T4 to T3. And again, you, those ratios are really only valid if the person's not on T3, because the T3 will skew the values. So I want to look at those things. And then the other thing I want to look at is where's my TSH in relation to my values. If somebody's on thyroid hormone and their TSH is still above the functional range and their T4 and free T4 are optimal, then I, that's a situation where I'm very cautious with that person. Like, be careful. Do not, you are not the person who needs to be adding more T4 to this system because the body's already starting to have a higher deactivation 
And the reason your TSH is staying, staying elevated is because the pituitary gland is trying to get that thyroid gland to try and make a little bit more T3. Normally, the thyroid gland makes at a T4 to T3 to 10 to 1 ratio, but we don't know. I haven't read that we understand the mechanism, but the pituitary gland is also monitoring T3. And when T3 levels are less than optimal, the pituitary gland will try and maintain a higher level of TSH, maybe not make your endocrinologist happy, but it'll try and keep that TSH more elevated because the signal it sends when there's low T3 is different when there's low T4. And so what happens is instead of the thyroid gland making T4 to T3 at a ratio of, of 10 to 1, it can drop it as low as 5 to 1. And so then when the doctor sees that TSA, it's still 3, you're still symptomatic, we're going to force more T4 into the system. It can artificially suppress that TSH, but it takes away what the pituitary gland was trying to do. Since the peripheral tissues aren't converting, the pituitary gland is like, hey, let's try and goose this thyroid gland to get just, come on, give us a little bit more T3. Let's see if we can do it. Mm -hmm. And we just blew it by over flooding the system. And then you usually see that with a really jacked reverse T3 on the next lab panel. But I want to look at that whole panel in context. And then the next thing I want to do is if I see that I have this tissue hypothyroidism going on, what's the primary driver of that? some type of stress or inflammatory response. So then I want to go right to my inflammatory markers and I want to see if I have elevated CRP, elevated homocysteine, elevated fibrinogen, elevated ferritin, elevated uric acid. I want to see if I see markers of inflammation. And sometimes the only marker of inflammation is CRP, right? High sensitive CRP. It's rare. I don't see it get done a lot, but when I do see it, somebody says you don't have an inflammatory condition because we measured CRP. What do you need to make CRP? You need T3 to make that protein. If you're already have tissue hypothyroidism, especially if it's impacting an area like the liver, you probably aren't going to have high levels of reverse of CRP. So you have to take that into consideration as well. I'm sure like you don't look at one lab value as the be end all be all. We look for patterns on blood work. Do I have a pattern of inflammation? I just have one marker out of range. Okay. Well, does it fit with my patient signs and symptoms? Not really. Okay. Let's retest it next time. Let's do it in, in two or three weeks. See if it comes, goes or changes because labs vary quite a bit because we're dynamic. And so if I see the inflammatory stuff going on, then I check that box. Like, okay. I've got tissue hypothyroidism. I know I already have thyroiditis that's probably been caused by this tissue hypothyroidism for an extended period of time. I know it's caused 90% destruction of the gland. And therefore, I know I've got a poorly regulated thyroid physiology. I've put some T4 and or T3 in the system, but I still have tissue hypothyroidism. So now I have justification for why that is. I also need to figure out where the inflammation is coming from. So the next piece is to look at the rest of the blood panel and say, okay, what tissues indicate or confirm that there's a level of tissue hypothyroidism? So that's where I'll start looking at the rest of the lab panel. So I'll look at the blood sugar markers. Do I have indications that I'm not regulating blood sugar appropriately? Is my fasting glucose high? Is my fasting insulin high? Is my hemoglobin A1C high? Those are like simple markers that are on almost every blood panel or should be and give you an indication that you're insulin resistant. So how do we know? Is that maybe it's caused by eating too much and not exercising enough? Maybe, but we all know somebody who doesn't exercise and eats too much and they're thin. So what's going on? In those situations, many times, if you don't have enough T3 in cells, 
of tissues, you can't transport glucose into the cell effectively, whether it's insulin driven or non-insulin driven, whether it's in a fasted state or a fed state, you need T3 to operate glute transporters. So if you don't have optimal T3, you're gonna have higher fasting glucose. You're going to have higher levels of insulin to try, even in a fasted state, to try and push that excess glucose somewhere. And guess where it's gonna go? It's gonna go into adipose sites, right? You're gonna push that all into reserve and we're gonna get our excess belly fat. The other thing I wanna look at is what other tissues? Well, renal system, requires, guess what, T3. So simple tasks we can look at, BUN, creatinine, and glomerular filtration rate. Optimal glomerular filtration rate is usually over 100, but and renal disease is at less than 60, right? So when you get a lab report done, many times a lab report just says greater than 60. What does that mean, right? <laughs> that doesn't tell me how healthy somebody is. That tells me that maybe they just didn't fail yet, right? And so if I'm seeing somebody's creatinine levels are elevated, their BUN levels are elevated, or their GFR is starting to go from 100 to 90 to 80 to 70. I know that they've got something going on with the renal system. And that might help me confirm that, yeah, I got low thyroid hormone to regulate glomerular filtration and kidney function. We can look at liver markers, right? So you need T3 inside the cells for cholesterol to bind to the liver with your LDL receptor to dump off a bunch of cholesterol, to make bile, to go out in the poop, to help with detox. So if you're a person who's got elevated LDL, elevated cholesterol, what you probably don't need is a statin. What you probably need is somebody to say, oh my gosh, we've got decreased T3 impacting the liver and now I can't get rid of the cholesterol that's in the physiology. Instead, we try and suppress it, but really that's a huge indicator that we've got decreased T3 at the mitochondria. We can look at triglycerides and VLDL. If we see VLDL is going up, triglycerides are going up. Even if you're on a ketogenic type diet, what's that tell us? That tells us that we're getting all this triglycerides spill into the bloodstream, but my liver is full. It's pushing those triglycerides back out into the system and then they got to go back into storage. So that's a good indication that I don't have enough T3. Why would T3 impact those things? Because T3 is really what drives cellular energy, your Krebs cycle, your electron transport chain. You need T3 to do those things. And if, those, if you're in a cell stress state, your body is actually, that T, decreased T3 is actually a protective response because we don't want, we need some oxidative stress to fight the fight, but we don't want too much to damage the cell. So the cell decreases that T3 to cause the mitochondria to kind of fuse together, become more, actually more efficient. You don't make more ATP, but it becomes more efficient the thing that bugs the patient, right, is that they lose what we call these proton leak areas, uncoupling proteins. Typically, if you're in a healthy state, healthy mitochondria, you dissipate a lot of excess energy as heat. And when you don't have, when you're in a hypothyroid state, you lose that excessive heat dump and heat production. It sometimes makes us cold and chilly and not, you know, always cold. But that's an indication that we could take a look at. And then we can take, there's a number of other systems we can take a look at. But as I go through the blood panel, I want to see what state of hypothyroidism I am, regardless of whether I'm primary or not, do I still have a cellular hypothyroid state? What tissues are being impacted? And then I want to look at the rest of the labs for like, where do I need to start 
Are there nutrient deficiencies? If there are, many times I'm starting at the gut because everything has to go into the GI tract. Everything has to come out through the GI tract. So how can you start loading people with lots of supplements to take if they have potential malabsorption issues? So, you know, I, even in some of the markers, if I've got an elevated bilirubin, I've got compromised bioflow, right? If I've got low, I may have signals of, or markers of hypochlorhydria. Again, T3 is needed for all those things. So I keep looking for the patterns. Then I start looking at where do I start? And then the last piece of that is, I got to look at their health, their health timeline to look for how did we get here? What was the path that this person took? What's their story of how we got here? And, you know, there's a famous philosopher, I think his name is Donkey, and he's walking through the field with Shrek. And he said, hey, Shrek, ogres are like onions. You have to peel back the layers. And we're the same way. Most people associate their thyroid condition with the day of their diagnosis, when in reality, you know this, you look at somebody's health timeline and you can see the problems just stacking up in time and then they develop hypothyroidism. No, that's the end of it. By the time your TSH is high and your T4 is low, you've lost 90% of the function of your thyroid gland. That is the end stage of the thyroid disease. That's not the beginning of it, but you are slowly getting cellular hypothyroid, cellular hypothyroid, more tissues impacted, more tissues impacted. Now we start to see thyroiditis. Now we start to see the destruction of the gland and eventually it becomes primary hypothyroidism, but that's the end. But when you look at labs from that perspective and you look for the patterns and you don't care about H or L as the indicator, because labs could be normal and appropriate. Labs could be normal and totally inappropriate. Labs could be abnormal and appropriate and labs could be abnormal and totally inappropriate. So we have to evaluate, interpret, and I don't think that happens enough. No. And I have to agree with you that, you know, when I am looking at lab work that's been done on, you know, my one-on-ones or people will ask questions on social media where I always have to say, I'm a nurse practitioner, but I'm not your nurse practitioner. One of the things that comes up with some frequency is misinformation about if they're diagnosed with a thyroid issue, generally speaking, oftentimes hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's, there's a lot of misnomers and nuances about whether or not this is reversible. So at what point is the hypothyroidism or the underactive thyroid, is it still reversible? Because you mentioned by the time you get to a point where both TSH and, and T4 are abnormal, you already have some destruction of the gland itself. So where is that point? And, and it could be that people are far blown beyond that by the time they actually get diagnosed. But for someone that's listening, who's hopeful at some point, they don't have to take thyroid medication. Is it truly reversible in your opinion? I think it really depends on the situation. I mean, if you asked me 10 years ago, I would tell you that based on the literature, the thyroid gland, once it's damaged, doesn't recover. I would tell you based on 27 years of doing this now that the thyroid gland can recover. And now the science is saying, hey, the thyroid gland can recover. It takes about five years for that thyroid gland to kind of regenerate itself. Now, why do most people not see it recover? Well, because the same things that drove the hypothyroid state to begin with and the thyroiditis are still there. Mm -hmm. So why would it get any better? But I see a large percentage of my clients that I work with have to reduce their thyroid medication dose. And many of them have to eliminate it altogether. And I don't prescribe. So I always have to send them back to their docs. And, you know, so what's happening, right? So there's a couple of options. Option A is that they're just absorbing more of their thyroid hormone because their gut functions better and they're converting it better because their cell stress is better. 
That's part A. I definitely think that happens. But in time, you know, that they've been doing the right things more consistently, they're still seeing the need for thyroid hormone to keep going down and down and down. And at some point they become any thyroid hormone is too much. And you, at that point, you have to say the thyroid gland is making sufficient thyroid hormone. It must have healthier cell function. And the new literature is actually justifying that that can be the case that it can come back. I think it's often thought of as rare because nobody's addressing root cause issues. And I think that's important because, you know, certainly, and I'm a good example of this. And for anyone that's listening, I'm kind of an open book about, you know, my own thyroid journey. I think a lot of people last fall were in full panic mode, including myself, you know, what are my options? You know, when people, so I would say last September, when a lot of the recalls for the desiccated products were brought about, which direction were most people heading in that were coming to you? Obviously you've identified that you don't prescribe, so you're not prescribing these medications, but were people desperately trying to stay away from the synthetics? Were they more open-minded to it? I know myself, I, out of desperation, finally agreed and actually felt better on the synthetics, which I was shocked by because I, you know, had been the card carrying anti-synthetic hormones person for such a long period of time. And I was actually humbled. So I'll be the first person to say that you can teach an old dog new tricks. You can evolve shift and change. And certainly I have in terms of my own kind of thyroid journey, but what has been your experience when you've got clients coming to you that you've either been following for a few years or new clients coming to you after the recall, which direction do you see most of their providers heading towards? Most of the patients that I've worked with aren't on T4, T3 combinations. They're on small doses Mm -hmm. of T4 if they're on anything and usually tyrosine. Although that's not always the case either, even though that's the one I prefer, but for somebody who's had tyrosine or they react to Synthroid or they just negatively react, one of the things you can do is you can look at all the different types of T4 medications and even the brands and the generics. You can see what all the other things are in it. And sometimes it's not, maybe tyrosine's gluten-free, but it's got cornstarch, which you're sensitive to, and that's the issue. So I think a lot of people who have just have reactions to the different types of T4 medication, it may not be the T4 that's in there, but really some of the excipients that are in there. Yeah. Yeah. The fillers. I was going to say, you know, for myself, I recall in cardiology, I would have women in particular that would, you know, tell me as we were, you know, admitting them to hospital, I won't be on any synthetic synthroid. And so I would, you know, take that to heart because obviously it was something that was important to them. And what I came to find out is that when you have a generic formulation, only about 80% of what is created in a lab has to be chemically equivalent. And so you can get all these other fillers. And so much to your point, you know, I'm on trade Synthroid and trade Cytomel and trade Cytomel is actually very hard to have covered by insurance. I actually ended up purchasing my prescriptions through a reputable pharmacy in Canada. And it was literally a third of the cost that I would have paid here in the United States. So, you know, really being sensitive to the fact that oftentimes those fillers, especially if you're gluten-free, and I know a lot of people that have hypothyroidism are dedicated gluten-free, sometimes dairy-free, sometimes soy-free, and really trying to be diligent with your diet, you can unknowingly be exposed to some of these fillers and perhaps not realize it. Yeah. And many times I think that's probably the bigger part of the problem. The amount of gluten that's probably in the medication is probably for most people, not as big a factor, but if it's available, it's gluten-free. If I know somebody's gluten-full, gluten intolerant or gluten sensitive, definitely put it on it. But I've had a number of patients that are like, I can't take it. 
And then you say, okay, let's look at the comparative trash. Which ones of these have cornstarch in them, which is a common thing that people are sensitive to. Okay, these are the two or three that you can try. These are the, the ones that you should probably shy away from. Let's see how you tolerate it. And they do better with a different form, even though it might not be a certified gluten-free form of it. But most of the patients that reach out to me, like I have a thyroid problem, I can't get MP thyroid, or you know, what can I do? What should I do? And my advice to most of them was, if you're going to work with somebody to figure out why you have this tissue hypothyroidism to begin with, then my suggestion is switch to T4 only and then get working on what the root cause issues are. If they don't want to go through that process, then it was, hey, try one of the other combination T4, T3 medications and see if you tolerate that or you're going to have to take the T4 and the T3 and see and do it that way. But I think by the time most people come to see me or call me, they're all hit that point where they're like, I need help. I know T3 is not the solution and they're frustrated and they're looking for an answer. I mean, a lot of the people that I see have failed on T4 because Mm -hmm. it's not converting. They started T3 and they felt good, but then the honeymoon period was over and then they went to lot more and more. And I, I mean, I've had patients taking, you know, more than 200 micrograms of T4, more than 25, 30 micrograms of T3 in a day and still feeling hypothyroid. And I understand why their allopathic physician is throwing their hands up like, hey, I'm dumping as much stuff as I can put into the system in the system and you're not responding. Patient gets looked at sometimes like they're crazy, but it's like we've totally forgot about the tissue response. And so for those patients who are willing to, then I'm like, okay, let's get busy and figure out what's going on here. And there's definitely a transition period. If you are on T3 and now you're coming off T3, you're going to go through a divorce period where you're not going to feel so good. And then everything starts to stabilize. What I hear from a lot of people is, Hey, I'm a little bit more fatigued and tired. My brain fog's gone. My anxiousness is gone. I can sleep again because what happens when you have a stress response going on in the body, the the brain is kind of upregulated. So you get increased conversion of T4 to T3 and the peripheral tissues get downregulated. And so they're still hypothyroid, but the brain's like racing and it'd be like sitting in your parking lot or in your driveway with your foot on the gas, but in park, right? You're not going anywhere, but you're just killing that engine. Same thing in our body. We're revving this fight or flight system, but nothing else is working. That's not a good place to be. And is that what happens when I know for myself personally, when I first got started on nature thyroid, anytime there was an adjustment in dosing, I would have two weeks of insomnia where I would be lying in bed, eyes were closed and I would just be awake. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if that is, you know, is it the sympathetic overdrive as your body's kind of acquiescing to more hormone? I would Mm -hmm. assume that that's probably what's driving it. And that was one of the Mm -hmm. questions I also got is insomnia with medication changes. What's normal, what's not normal. Well, I think when you increase your thyroid medication, you get insomnia, you just created a hyperthyroid state in the hypothalamus. And what happens is that hypothalamus converts T4 to T3. And then when there's lots of T3 in the hypothalamus that activates the sympathetic nervous system. So, and you know, that's good. Your sympathetic nervous system kind of says, Hey, let's get rid of some of this extra stuff. Let's burn off some calories. Let's do some stuff. If everything is working downstream, But instead, what happens many times, somebody's in this stress, their body's in this stress state. So they get this sympathetic upregulation and they don't have the ability to kind of calm that system back down. In time, their body starts to increase the deactivating portion. I think they can start, some of those people get to actually 
kind of balance it out. But a lot of people still continue to have problems. We talked right before we got started that if you in a hypo or a hyperthyroid state, you can upregulate mast cells in the brain. And those mast cells are like immune cells and they dump out histamine, which a lot of people are familiar with, but they can also mast cells hold on to T3. So in a hypothyroid state, mast cells can degranulate and provide T3 if needed. Unfortunately, you get the negative side effects of the histamine, but when there's high T3, the high T3 actually stimulates the mast cells to degranulate, right? So it is this balance, but I think sometimes when somebody gets that anxious anxiety, is it normal? It's common. I don't think it's normal. I think when you have those anxious, the anxiety, the insomnia, that's a really good thing to acknowledge and then make sure you're talking to your practitioner who's ever providing that and say, hey, listen, these are the signs and symptoms I'm experiencing. And they should be aware enough to say, okay, those are more hyperthyroid symptoms. Let's back this mm-hmm. down a little bit. And you as the, as the individual have to be aware that, okay, cranking my thyroid hormone cranked up my anxiousness, anxiety, insomnia, made me more hyperthyroid in the brain. It's probably not the right strategy to increase weight loss and grow my hair and grow my nails because you're still probably not in the right environment to do that. Right. And it's important for listeners to understand that there's this autonomic nervous system. And so you've got fight or flight and rest and repose. And so if, if you can't sleep and you're stuck in sympathetic dominance, there are a lot of other things that don't happen accordingly as well. So we want to find balance between these two aspects of our central nervous system. And unfortunately, most, if not all of us are sympathetic dominant because we're you know constantly on the go, multitasking, not getting enough sleep, not getting enough exercise. One of the things I found fascinating when I was doing a little bit of research prior to our recording was you were talking a lot about fat malabsorption. And so now we're kind of pivoting a bit and talking about the gut. And what I found particularly interesting was your discussion about high HDL. So this beneficial aspect of our cholesterol panel, you know, most people were talking about total cholesterol, LDL, HDL, triglycerides, and you know, as someone who's always existed in the high HDL, low triglycerides realm, I found your discussion. And I think this would be really interesting to listeners. I was like, oh, I've got a high HDL. So I don't even worry about what the other values are, especially with low triglycerides. And you actually feel, and this makes sense that a high HDL can sometimes be an indicator of poor liver function or this decreased conversion of T3 in the liver. Can you talk a little bit about that? So yeah, so high T3 and then, you know, what's high, what's normal. I mean, if you look at a lab report, I think if it's over 45, it's considered good, but I think the optimal range for females, 65 to 85 for a male, I think it's somewhere like 45 to 65. I think that's the range. I don't remember offhand, but those are the optimal ranges, but what's a, what is HDL? So HDL, is it good? Is it bad? I think we have to get rid of those good, bad things because the HDL and VL and LDL and VLDL are either just boats that carries cholesterol and free fatty acids and other proteins around the body, right? So they're not bad or good. The body produces these things based on what it needs. And so HDL is always considered good because it kind of has, it's kind of carrying this kind of emptier molecule back to the liver and there's less bad stuff in it. So it could pick up more stuff if it wants, but I think low HDL is probably not a great thing, Mm -hmm. but HDL is probably not a great thing either. What the literature seems to show is that when you have a high level of HDL, 
it's probably more indicative of immune or autoimmune issues than it is like, woohoo, I just have high cholesterol. I just have high HDL that it's like a badge to be worn. All these Uh, years, mine's been in like the nineties and I just thought I was a total badass. So this is completely blowing my mind right now. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. So I think we often make the assumption that because we call it the good one, that the higher it is, the better. But in reality, it probably means we have an issue with the unloading and offloading of free fatty acids. We're not really doing what we're supposed to be doing. And we have probably an immune or autoimmune condition going on. And T3 physiology plays a huge role in how we regulate our lipids from triglycerides to cholesterol, to LDL, to VLD, HDL. When we see a change in lipid status, it does not mean that you probably ate just too much fat in your diet. I mean, that's probably not the case. It's probably an indication that there's breakdown in cell physiology at the liver. We're not using, able to burn our free fatty acids. We're not able to transport these things as effectively. And we're not able to get them into our liver, get them into bile so we can have proper detoxification pathways. So HDL may be good if it's elevated, but not high. If you're a female, 65 to 85, I think if you're a man, somewhere in that 50 to 65 range is probably good. If you're walking around with something over 85 and you're not aggressively trying to jack that up with maybe with high dose oils or you know fish oils or something like that, it's probably worth investigating and taking a deeper look at why would it be elevated? Especially, I would be interested if there's some type of immune or autoimmune issue going on. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data 
and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12 month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Well, and it's interesting. So when I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism, now it was four years ago, my antibodies have always been negative. And I was taught you're one of those very small percentage of people, maybe 10 to 15% that have non-autoimmune hypothyroidism, whereas 80 to 85% of people have Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune component. Interestingly enough, when I interviewed Dr. Alan Christensen, he said, non-autoimmune hypothyroidism is really rare. And you probably do slash did have Hashimoto's and you can have Hashimoto's and have negative antibodies. And that completely blew my mind. And, and the reason why I wanted to make sure we kind of touched on this is that I was always kind of taught that, oh, if your antibodies are negative, you don't have, you know, you don't have Hashimoto's. And so what I've come to realize is that there are again, nuances to the thyroid and it could very well, maybe six months before my antibodies weren't normal. And by the time I finally figured out something was amiss and I had them tested, they were, you know, within normal limits. So I'm curious if that's a pattern that you've seen, or do you agree with, you know, Dr. Christensen in terms of there's a lot more Hashimoto's than what we actually realize is out there. Yeah. So I think it comes down to how we're going to classify what's going on. Okay. And my intake on it, to some degree, I agree with a lot of Alan's thoughts. Sometimes some of the things I think he says, is, I, yeah, I'm not quite sure, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. We're all, you know, I think it'd be yeah. great to get a bunch of us in a room and hash out some of these things because none of us know all the right answer or mm -hmm. have all the right answers. And we're just working off experience and what we learn through research. But my take on what's happening at the thyroid gland is it's all thyroiditis. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the differentiation between thyroiditis and Hashimoto's is TPO and thyroglobulin antibodies. Okay. So TPO antibodies specifically, but we know that TPO, thyroglobulin, TSH antibodies can be made whether you have Graves, whether you have thyroiditis or you have Hashimoto's, right? They can be produced in any one of those states. Now, when is it thyroiditis and when is it Hashimoto's? The differentiator is if there's no antibodies, it's thyroiditis. If we see antibodies, it's Hashimoto's. And sometimes we make too big of a deal about that because people believe and have been told that the antibodies 
damage. They're like little Pac-Man eating away at the thyroid gland and that creates all the damage. And the reality is the science doesn't seem to show that that's the case. So when what happens often with thyroiditis is that thyroid cells have danger sensors on the cells. Okay. So when thyroid cells perceive danger, whether it's from peripheral sources or damage to the thyroid gland itself, these damaged particles can bind to receptors on the thyroid cell and the thyroid cell initiates its own self-destruct. A matter of fact, the thyroid cells have sensors for lipopolysaccharides, which are and LPS, lipopolysaccharides, is something terrified you hear all about with leaky gut, right? <laughs> terrified uh, of it. And LTA, which is the coating of gram-positive bacteria. But these things from the lymph system in the GI tract can go right into the lymph system of the thyroid gland. Soon as those danger signals are, are recognized, the thyroid gland itself, it doesn't even need the immune system, actually initiates its own self-destruct mode. So it self-destructs and it actually spews out signaling molecules that invite the lymphocytes into the thyroid gland. That's what, there's our thyroiditis, right? These infiltrating lymphocytes. What the literature shows is that thyroglobulin antibodies cause no damage to the thyroid gland at all, none, okay? And that TPO antibodies, while they can cause some damage, cause a very small amount, if any damage to the thyroid gland itself, maybe less than 5% of the damage to the gland is caused by the antibodies. The vast majority of it is just caused by the infiltrating lymphocytes. So if that's the case based on the literature, TPO antibodies aren't gobbling up your thyroid gland, okay? So you have thyroiditis, whether you want to call it Hashimoto's thyroiditis or thyroiditis, I don't care, but you have thyroiditis, that's causing the damage. Now, some people would say, well, it's the immune system out of control. There's nothing you can do about it. That's allopathic medicine's approaches. It's idiopathic. It's out of control. There's nothing you can do. It's just going to eat it away. In functional medicine, we hear people say, hey, it's an autoimmune condition. There's not much you can do. We're going to try and kind of do some of the things maybe that can trigger it, but it's an immune system out of control. I don't believe in most situations it's an immune system out of control. I don't think the immune system is that just kind of loses it somewhere along the way and somehow forgets self from non-self. Now, there's lots of theories about autoimmunity. I think the last count, I think there was 13 and I get it. And I think molecular mimicry, I understand mm -hmm. all those things as well. I'm a bigger believer that the body does things for a reason. And if you, it was just an immune system out of control, then you're doomed, you're screwed. You're never gonna get rid of it. But what do we spend all our time doing in functional medicine is reducing an excessive stress response. I'm getting rid of gluten, I'm getting sleep, I'm trying to breathe better, I'm getting rid of bacteria and viruses in my gut, I'm eating better food. We're trying to reduce the stress load. And when we reduce the stress load, we see the thyroiditis start to subside. We see antibodies go down. So if you think about it from my perspective, if I'm a cell and I'm in danger, I can decrease thyroid hormone in one cell. That's easy. If I have to do it in one tissue, maybe that's easy. But if I have to do it globally, shut down the source. And it makes sense because we see that in cases of famine and starvation and other factors where the body's in a global distress and we see the deactivation of thyroid hormone. So what I think is going on in most cases isn't that this thyroid immune system is out of control and the antibodies are just gobbling up. The antibodies are like the cleanup crew. Would you really yell at the cleanup crew you know, after you know, New Year's Eve party for making all the mess in, New in Times Square? They're cleaning it up. They're not doing all the damage. Sure, they break a couple of things on the way, but they're doing most of the cleanup, which is what I think we're seeing when we see thyroid antibodies. So to me, I think everybody has thyroiditis to some degree, whether we see antibodies or not. I don't put as much 
attention. If you want to call it Hashimoto's, great. I think they're probably all mm-hmm. Hashimoto's. The only reason we call it Hashimoto's is because Dr. Hashimoto solved thyroid antibodies, but it's thyroiditis. And then the key is in functional medicine that we see sometimes is that people are focused on, and I was too, when I learned that, because when I originally learned, I thought the thyroid antibodies were caused, TBO antibodies were causing all the damage. And so the goal was to suppress antibodies, right? How do I lower the antibodies? And I did thyroid Thursday post. How do you lower your antibodies? Now I could kick myself because I don't know if that's necessarily what you want to do. If the thyroid antibodies aren't causing most of the damage, artificially suppressing antibodies doesn't make a ton of sense. Yes, it masks the issue, but the thyroiditis could still be going on. And so that's when you see somebody who's taking high dose vitamin D because they want to, because it suppresses my antibodies. It does. It suppresses the TH2 side, your adaptive immune system. But is that what you want? Mm -hmm. If the antibodies truly aren't causing the damage to the gland, do you really need to blast vitamin D to suppress it? I don't know if that's the right strategy. We know we have TH1 and TH2, and some people have talked about Hashimoto's as a TH1 dominant disorder or TH2 dominant disorder. The literature seems to show that it's both, that it starts as T1, transitions to T2, and it can flip-flop back and forth. But if you think alike about it, similar to how I think about it, the immune is not doing the wrong thing. It's saying, hey, we got a danger mode, slow down metabolism. Let's find what this thing is and get rid of it. We don't need a lot of metabolism. And somebody may say, well, why would the cell do that? Well, if I'm a cell and I've got a bacteria or a virus inside of me and I keep bringing glucose in, I'm going to feed the organism. If I keep making proteins, I'm going to support that organism. If I keep making, bringing iron in and not, and start having this iron available, now that No, those organisms can replicate. If I make more energy, the organism can steal it and use it. So there's this constant battle when an organism's in a cell with for resources. And so the body, the cells are pretty smart. Hey, there's a thread in here. Wall the cell off, stiffen the membranes, make it hypoxic, increase oxidative stress, but not too much. And don't make glucose. Don't make building blocks. We're going to do autophagy and mitophagy instead. We'll live off the debris in the cell. And in the process of cleaning up the cell, we'll actually probably find those organisms, kill them, eat them up and get rid of them. So I don't think this thing is all broken. And I think that's good for the person. You're not broken. Your body is adapting to some type of excessive stress. The most problematic part of the whole thing is it's not the same stress for everybody. Everybody wants to know what's the one thing, what's the one thing that fixes my T4 to T3 conversion. You got to reduce your excessive cell stress. People get angry all the time. Like, well, just tell me what I need to do. Well, you need to eat better, sleep better, rest better, less trauma, emotional improvement, change your gut, good diet. Nobody wants to hear that stuff. They want the easy stuff. Like, give me the next capsule to do. And it's different. You know, there's 10 people, hypothyroidism, all got there for different reasons. So the solution is only going to be the same if your goal is to normalize TSH with T4. If your goal is to normalize or restore normal homeostatic thyroid physiology, the solution's different because 10 people got there for 10 different reasons. Well, I think it's so important to honor bioindividuality, but certainly your explanation is far more positive and supportive than any other explanation I have actually listened to, because I think for so many, there's this doom and gloom. If you have an autoimmune issue, then it's all bad. And oftentimes what you're really saying, the crux of the issue is we've conditioned our patients and this is part of allopathic medicine. I was part of that for many, many years. Every symptom requires a pill instead of really doing the hard work, which will probably yield better results than 
masking or band-aiding a problem. Now, I want to be mindful of your time, but I just have a couple more questions. A comment that came up quite a bit is, I know that iodine is particularly controversial as it pertains to thyroid function. There are some pro-iodine camps. There are some anti-iodine camps. Where do you fall on the continuum of iodine? Well, I would say I'm more neutral. I've read Alan's information and I don't know that I agree with all of what he has to say. I've seen the other camp and I've seen people taking iodine and blow out their thyroids. I think for the general population, mild amounts of iodine are not going to be the be all end all. Okay. I think we live in a time where a, there is in most of the areas where we're kind of, you know, advanced, we got food, we got iodine, we, we have iodine. There's arguments in some areas there aren't, but in most of the food, if you're eating processed food, there's usually iodine mm-hmm. added in there in some form or another. I think it's critical for many functions. I think the biggest challenge is, is that there isn't a clear cut answer. And we don't have a clear cut way to really assess it and manage it because they'll always say it's by the population. Well, have you seen this population? Our population isn't super healthy. So I don't think you can go by that because everybody's not in the same state of health and we're not, we've got different things going on and people eat different foods within that same population. Some people eat a lot of processed food. Some people don't eat any processed food, but I think trace amounts of iodine for the vast majority of people is fine. But I rarely find that I'm treating somebody specifically with any iodine. I've done a bunch of the tests on iodine testing and people that are struggling with thyroid issues. And I'm just, you know, done most of the tests that are out there. I'm just not convinced one way or the other that iodine is the under iodine deficiency or iodine excess is the primary driver, especially in places like the US as the underlying reason. I know Alan's kind of like, it's iodine excess in everybody. I know the other camp is everybody's deficient. I just don't think it's that black and white. And so for most of my patients, when they ask me, do I need to be on iodine? I usually tell them probably not at the moment. If you really want to know, we can do some tests. Can't confirm actually, but probably need to do it a couple of times in a row to kind of get a base and then see how things differentiate with eating kind of the same type of stuff. But for the vast majority of people, I have them just focus on eating whole food, real food, and let's address all the other things. And if Mm -hmm. things still don't improve and we don't see the thyroid gland improving in output, then maybe it's something we take a look at. But I think as most things, they're not black and white. I think that's a fair, that's a, certainly a fair response. Um, you know, in my practice, I was using the Hakala, you know, which is mm-hmm. this iodine test and had some good results, but I've always been cautious. I would just tell people if they were low, I'm like, go eat some sea vegetables, which no one, you know, unless they like seaweed, that was always an interesting, you know, self-flagellation by my part. Now, in terms of, I got a couple of questions about why do I get cold when I'm hypothyroid and I have some ideas, but I thought you probably would have a more eloquent explanation for why that actually occurs. Like what is actually going on with thermogenesis in the body that's driving that sensation of feeling cold with an underactive thyroid? Well, one of those we already talked about is you lose some of the uncoupling protein in the mitochondria to actually dissipate heat as when you have healthy mitochondria, they make a lot of ATP, but so we don't have too much oxidative stress can dissipate heat. Well, if you don't have a lot of thyroid hormone in the cells, your mitochondria don't have that kind of that heat pump leak and can dissipate heat real well. 
But on a mac, more of a macro level, you know, your brown adipose tissue primarily is the big heat generator of the body. And so you, you need T3, you need two things. You need sympathetic stimulation and you need T3 inside your brown adipose tissue to generate heat. And so if you have tissue hypothyroidism at your brown adipose tissue, you're going to have a hard time generating heat. And the other thing is a lot of us, as we get older, don't have that much brown adipose tissue. We're, we got fats, but we don't have brown adipose tissue. And brown adipose tissue is really the more metabolically active at generating heat. White adipose tissue is more active at generating inflammation. And so most of us have more white adipose tissue. The nice thing is that if you do the right things diet lifestyle wise, and you have enough, enough T3 actually getting to the cells and tissues, you can beige your white adipose tissue. So make it more brown-like and they call that beige adipose tissue. But if you're cold all the time, despite a normal TSH and T4, it's lack of T3 getting to those brown adipose tissues to generate heat, reduce mitochondrial function, which you should expect if you're in a hypothyroid state, you're going to make less ATP. It's going to be maybe more efficient with the resources it has, but you're going to generate less. And you probably have a higher level of white adipose tissue. So there's a bunch of things diet lifestyle wise that somebody can do to kind of help that along if they're feeling functional enough to do it. And exercise is one of those things. that's a, a really good inducer of browning your adipose tissue. Yeah. I also like to suggest things like cryotherapy, which has become mm -hmm. kind of my geeky thing that I do not with my husband per se, we do it separately, but at the same time in the same location, I really enjoy that quite a bit. Last two questions. Mm -hmm. I know your opinion of fasting, but the caveat is what are your thoughts on women? And this was, I got this question five separate times. What are your thoughts on intermittent fasting for women of middle age? So perimenopause, menopause that have an underactive thyroid. It's like add in all those variables and my standard response, it's all about bioindividuality, but I'm curious to get your take on it because one of the things about fasting that not necessarily everyone talks a lot about is that fasting can improve mitochondrial efficiency. And perhaps for these individuals that have got an underactive thyroid, it can be beneficial, but I think there are a lot of caveats. Like it's all those nuances again of saying, well, if you've got your sleep dialed in, if your stress management's under control, if you know your blood sugar, and it's like all these variables that can impact that answer. But I figured I would ask you anyway. So when you're perimenopausal or menopausal, if typically we should have a reduction of estrogen, right? So estrogen and thyroid hormone both drive mitochondrial function, okay? So if you're hypothyroid, whether it's glandular, and if you're glandular and you're remediated with thyroid hormone and it's all good, not an issue. But if you still have tissue hypothyroidism despite that, and you have lower levels of estrogen because you're going through that change, you don't have the hormones that are really going to drive mitochondrial function. And the challenge then becomes people are concerned that fasting is going to be problematic. And I get it. It sounds that like that would be the state. Like if I don't eat calories, right? If I don't have food in, that's going to trigger my thyroid hormone to slow down. However, if you already have slow mitochondria, they aren't burning much energy in the first place, right? So they've reduced the amount of food energy they're converting into cellular energy already. So if you put more food calories into a system that's already has down-regulated mitochondria, 
it's not going to work, make it work any better. Matter of fact, it's going to have to dissipate and go out and make other things, more cholesterol. It's going to go into in creating more of the fat that they don't want, right? So I think this conversation that fasting creates a problem, I think in short term, it does create a change in thyroid physiology, but it's temporary. And the body also has a backup system to take T3, deactivate the T2, but that T2 is actually functional and actually maybe has more of a mitochondrial function. So even though we might see with fasting and some of the science that there's an elevation of reverse T3 in a fasted state and a lower level of T3, what we're not measuring is T2. And T3, when it's, when it's converted or metabolized to T2, T2 and T2, T3 metabolites may have, if not more, as much to do with the function of the mitochondria. So the body always has a backup plan. Mm -hmm. I think the bigger issue for people isn't whether you're fasting, it's about signaling. And so if you are eating small amounts of calories and not getting satiety signals to the brain, I think that's more problematic. And because you're not giving the brain the signal that I'm feeding on a regular basis, it's not enough of a signal to say I'm good, increased metabolism. So when you eat a bunch of food, what should happen is you should get signals to brain that says, hey, I'm good. One of those things that goes to your brain, when we get food in and we start having like some spillover of calories, like, hey, I got to start storing some of this stuff your adipose cells produce leptin. And leptin is that thing that says, hey, we're good, don't need to eat anymore, and shut it down, shut down satiety. If you're getting satiety signals in a 12-hour period, 24-hour period, or even like 48-hour period, your body's going to get that signal that, hey, I'm not starving, I've got stuff in. But when you graze and you eat little bits of stuff, and not a lot of calories and never enough to really get a satiety signal. I think that's the bigger problem. I don't think there's a problem with somebody fasting. I think actually the opposite is true for a lot of people. If you're, I'm not trying, I don't want anybody to starve themselves. As a matter of fact, I use time-restricted eating quite a bit with my patients, but you have to see how do they adapt to it. And it's not necessarily something they need to do every day. Be flexible about it and see how you do, see how you respond. But most people do really good with it. I don't see a problem in my base of patients for the most part. I see a lot of people struggle in the beginning as they transition to it because they're used to having some type of snack every hour, two hours, or three hours. And they're constantly small grazing through the day because they're living on carbohydrates. But I think the problem becomes is that they're not getting the satiety signals and if they're not getting satiety signals, that's when the body may have more of a danger response, which could be the problem. But I don't think that's usually the issue. I think the cases for most people is which is the opposite is they there's a combination of factors going on. This is like ugly, but you've got cellular hepatitis. They got decreased T3. They're still because they have decreased T3, they're storing excess calories as adipose tissue. As they're storing excess calories as adipose tissue, they're increasing their leptin and they're increasing their inflammation. The inflammation is going to then downregulate their metabolism a bit. And that leptin should signal to the brain, right? That, hey, we've got plenty of food on board, ramp up thyroid hormone production. Let's kick this thing into gear, increase that sympathetic nervous system. Let's just sweat. Let's get active. And that's how it should work. But the problem is, is that as we start to have slower metabolism and store calories, and especially if we're doing that low eating, small amounts of five, six small meals per day, 
we wind up not being able to get satiety signals, but we also wind up still storing some of that extra caloric load. We start having more body fat. We start having more circulating leptin and then leptin resistance kicks in where the brain says, Hey, I'm not going to listen to that anymore. And so now your brain doesn't turn off. It doesn't get the satiety signal, even though there's tons of leptin in the system. So it doesn't listen to that signal anymore. And now you're constantly hungry. And so that's not a good sign. So then you eat more, which you can't use, and then you store it. And then it creates inflammation, which creates problems. And then it can increase more leptin and it keeps going. And then what happens is we get diagnosed with hypothyroidism over time. And somebody comes in and says, hey, I'm just going to blast you with some thyroid hormone. Is that good? Well, I don't know, because now you're giving somebody a bunch of thyroid hormone that we would hope is going to help improve metabolism. It's going to increase that, maybe that fight or flight response, but it probably is not going to have the intended impact, especially if that person is already in leptin resistant because they're already hungry. And now we just flooded their brain, their hypothalamus with T4, which said, hey, brain, I've got lots of T4 converted T3 up here. We got to increase metabolism. I mean, we got to increase eating because now I've got all this thyroid hormone on board because when you have in a hyperthyroid state, that increases your demand for more calories. So it's really problematic for the person who's been leptin resistant for a period of time. And then you give them thyroid hormone. You may actually make them even hungrier than they were before. And that high level of thyroid hormone that you've put in there, you saturate the hypothalamus, you drop their TSH. You increase their sympathetic nervous system, decrease their vagal response, right? So now they don't digest it well. And then the last piece of that is when the brain has that signal that it's flooded with thyroid hormone, it ubiquinates something called deiodinase 2, which is the deactivating enzyme of deiodinase 2. When you ubiquinate deiodinase 2, it turns it off. So now you have a brain saying, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. I got all this thyroid hormone. We got to eat, got to eat, got to eat. You've got reduced satiety signals because of your leptin resistance. And now you just deactivated the converting enzyme in your peripheral tissues. And now your TSH is low, T4 is high, you're hungry and you're gaining weight. And it's your doctor's looking at you like, this can't be. Your TSH is like 0.00. There's no way you're gaining weight. And they can absolutely gain weight because of this kind of ugly kind of hormonal web of dysfunction that's going on. Sorry about that. They got a little off. No, 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 no. I think it's also fascinating. And as I said, the last time we connected for the podcast, I'll have to have you back because you do such a beautiful job explaining some pretty complicated subjects, but kind of distilling it so that the listener can literally digest the information and feel empowered and inspired. Now, how can listeners connect with you on social media if you don't follow Dr. Eric on Instagram, you need to, because he does so much teaching. There's a lot of great information and whether you're a clinician or the lay public highly recommend following him on Instagram. And I'm not usually plugging people on Instagram, but that's where you have a a lot of fantastic resources. How can listeners connect with you? What's the easiest way to find you on social media or your website? My website's rejuvagencenter.com. And anybody who wants to kind of reach out to me, you know, they can go to rejuvagenercenter.com and they can schedule a complimentary discovery call. I do, I do a few every day to kind of talk to people about their thyroid issues and kind of give them some insight. And if they're interested in working with me, it's a good kind of interview process to find out if we're compatible and we're 
if what they want is what I provide or what I provide is what they want to do. But if they're looking for like some of the stuff that I talk about and do, definitely Instagram. It's funny. I think a year ago, I didn't even have an Instagram account and somebody convinced me to have an Instagram account. And so, but I find it's like the best platform. So I'm on Facebook, but I, I'm not really on Facebook. I'm really post everything, I guess, Instagram, then it goes to Facebook somehow. But that's where I post most of my stuff. I have thyroid Thursday videos. I have a YouTube channel that most of the stuff is on, but I'd say Instagram is a place that Dr. Ball Cabbage is where I put most of my stuff. And really my goal there is just to take the stuff that I learn or read or that I see in clinical practice and kind of try and help explain it so that people can understand why they don't feel good. You know, and then I have a podcast as well. I think we've had you on the podcast. We have you back on soon. It's called Thyroid Answers Podcast. And on that podcast, we have people come in and we talk about, you know, answer the questions that people have about thyroid physiology. We talk about gut. We talk about this cellular hypothyroidism. We talk about cell danger response. We talk about fasting. We talk about all different aspects of health that actually are the cause of cell stress and hypothyroidism. And when we address those other things, thyroid physiology, because it's not broken, it's adapting, can actually come back into normal range most times in normal physiology. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your time today. And I look forward to connecting again, as always. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFOS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.